In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. All right, everyone. I want to welcome Richard Kestenbaum. Uh, he is the co-founder and partner at Triangle Capital LLC. I'm very excited to have him uh, on the show today. And uh, Richard, welcome first off. Thank you so much, Bobby. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. And, you know, I want to, you know, give you a little bit of some uh, some time to talk through what you do at, at uh, Triangle Capital and, uh, you know, what you're focused on industry-wise. I'm a banker. And we do mergers, acquisitions, and capital raising. I was a partner in a big firm on Wall Street called Drexel Burnham Lambert. And 17 years ago, I co-started this firm with my partner, Errol Glasser, who was previously a partner in a big firm called Kidder Peabody. And what we do is focused on companies in retail and consumer. And we help them to either sell control or raise capital. Typically, the transactions we do are the most important transactions our clients have ever done. And that means they're hyper-focused on what we're doing because it's not just important to their business, it's important in their lives. And we like that. We also, as a, as a result of doing what we do, or I should say, in order to do what we do, you have to spend all day talking with CEOs because they're the only ones who can make the kinds of decisions that are involved in doing mergers and acquisitions. As a result of that, we become aware of the trends in the industries that we cover. And I started writing a blog about that a few years ago. I put it up on Tumblr. And about four years ago, the blog moved over to Forbes. And uh, so now I write for Forbes. And the question I like answering that I think helps make us better bankers is, what do we see in the world right now that helps us understand what the world will look like in a year or two years or five years from now? And we find that when we can get a better grasp of the answer to that, it helps us present the companies that we're selling in ways that help investors and buyers understand how it fits into the stream of what consumers want in the future, which is what gives it value. It's part of our value add. So as you've been working you know, with different clients, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've uh, noticed and realized in, in customer behavior? We've seen so many big changes in consumer behavior. And I guess one of the biggest things that we're seeing now or pre-coronavirus, which will undoubtedly continue post-virus, I hope we get there soon enough, is that you used to see companies get formed by having a person who worked in an industry for a long time say to themselves, hey, I can do this for myself. Why should I be working for some other firm or company, et cetera? And they go out and form the same business for themselves. Now what we see is entrepreneurs who don't have a lot of experience in an industry say to themselves, hey, this service or product is broken. And then instead of forming, creating a new product 
and going out and marketing it and creating what we used to call advertising, which we now call content. They create content first and they curate content, they create original content, and they develop an audience for their content. It could be a website, could be an Instagram, could be really anything. And they create an audience. Generally, the audience gets up to thousands of people. And once they have the audience, the audience identifies with the values and interests that are being explained in the content, they create product that suits the audience. And what that does, and the reason why that's important, is because we've seen that as new brands are created and go direct to consumer, the cost of acquiring customers is very high. And the cost of doing that through Instagram and Facebook is, has become astronomical. And if you don't have a direct voice to your consumers, the odds that you'll be able to create a successful business, not just a business with a lot of revenue, but a business that can make money, not that high. So what we've been seeing prior to the shutdown is that there's a weeding out going on between the companies that have real business models and companies that can only generate a lot of revenue without profitability. And very often, the difference between those two things is the customer acquisition cost. So if the customer acquisition cost is not built into the foundation of the business, it's going to be really hard to get to profitability because it's so easy to dump endless money into customer acquisition. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. As, as you're you know, talking to, again, different retailers, do you have a pre-COVID and post-COVID type mentality as you're coaching your, your clients? Or is this really... Are you thinking about things in terms of that? that's the general strategy you have to follow, whether you're in a pre- or post-world corona world? Certainly, the world's going to be different in post-shutdown than pre-shutdown. But there are a lot of trends that were trending pre-shutdown that are being accelerated post-shutdown. So obviously, we're going to see an acceleration of the shift to online. And in certain industries like grocery and beauty, where the online revenue as a percentage of the total was very low, those are accelerating now. That was inevitable, but now we're seeing it happen probably at a faster rate than we would have seen it had there been no coronavirus. But it had to happen one way or the other. It was just a matter of time. Now the time's going to move faster. We've also that the things that consumers are interested in are evolving in periods that normally take six months in a matter of days during the shutdown. So the interest in media and certain topics has evolving. And of course, today, now people are interested in what does reopening look like? So, of course, we're seeing a lot of conversation about that. How long will that subject last? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What I think uh, uh, you're also kind of uh, you know, pinpointing here is as retailers are kind of thinking about you know some of their strategies, the buzzword, if you will, omni-channel has, has been around for a while now. But what do you feel like retailers are getting wrong as they're developing you know, their omni-channel experiences? And what, what should they be focusing on? I don't really believe in omni-channel. I don't really believe there's such a thing as a mobile consumer. 
I think we all recall that if you're a retailer, you never cared whether they bought it in your Chicago store or your Houston store. And you likewise don't care if they bought it off your Facebook feed or your Chicago store or your website as long as they bought it. So the important thing to remember is there are customers and most likely most consumers are multi-dimensional. It may be that they'll buy it on their mobile device while they're standing in your store or in one of your retailer's stores. Does that make them a mobile customer? I don't think so. We all change our modes depending on our needs at the moment and depending on the product. I think the important thing is, is my offering where the consumer is at the moment in time when they're ready to make the purchase? Do they have the information, one way or the other, to make the purchase and choose my product? Most importantly, for most products, and of course not everything's the same, do they understand the value system of me and my team? in a way that causes them to identify with our product so that we wind up being able to avoid having to sell our product based on price. Do they come right to us because they say, I identify with this and this is what I want of this type of product? Or do they say, let me see what's cheapest? If what they're saying is, let me see what's cheapest, you have a real problem because then you're selling a commodity. And it's almost impossible to make money doing that. As uh, retailers are you know, getting out to market, and you, again, you bring up a good point as far as you know, really not going after, really pushing out the value statements and the values that, that make uh, someone buy your product. What are some best practices that you can give our listeners about how they can implement some of those today? <laughs> it's a great question. In some ways, it's the ultimate question because... I was just talking with an entrepreneur this morning, and what I said to her was, you have a great product. It's not enough. In the foundation of your business, the very foundation, the place where you identify what business you're going to be in and what attributes your product will have, you must also have a foundational element that relates to the voice you have to your consumer. There must be a unique way that you communicate to your consumer. It can be in packaging. It can be on Facebook. It can be on television. It can be in earned media. It can be in one of a million different things. But if it's not unique to you, then you're competing against a lot of noise. It's going to be very hard to make money. And having that mode of communication constantly change is going to prove to be very expensive and will make your consumers fickle. So choose your value systems. What you believe is important about your business that consumers should know and choose how you want to communicate it to them. So, you know, what kinds of things are consumers looking for? They want ethical supply chain. They want convenience. They want to know how you treat people They want to know how you feel about sustainability and the world around you. They want to know about the artisanal character of your product. They want to know where it's made. Is it local? All of those value systems, and it can't be everything to everybody, are part of the menu that consumers want to know about your brand. You have to identify who you are, what you believe in, 
and find a way to convey that to consumers that causes those people who believe what you believe to identify with you and come to you. And that's what the content is about. And don't let me minimize it. We used to say, build a, it's all about product, product, product. And it still is. You can't skimp on the product. So the product still has to be great, but now consumers want more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are, are there areas that you think as as an uh, you know, entrepreneur or you know, as a company, I'm putting together really the areas of focus that, that I want others to, to know about my company. Are there areas that you think retailers should avoid talking about? Are there areas that they shouldn't have as a part of this strategy discussion that they're having internally? I can't think of anything. There may be things that consumers don't care about, but are there things that you might focus on that you think are important that are negatives? No. You know, we've seen some studies that indicate that if you have to choose a political position or something that, you know, so much of our social issues become political. But one of the things I've seen data on is that when conservative people see something in a company that they don't agree with, they don't care. When liberal people see something in a company that they don't agree with, they care a lot. So the commercial purely commercial side says, if you have to fall on one side or the other, fall on the liberal side because that's where it is. But, you know, it depends on who's your customer base and what are you selling and to whom. So you have to think about that. And, you know, one of the things that consumers want is authenticity. So if you say something that you don't really believe, eventually that catches up with you. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Totally agree with that one. Uh, we actually coach a lot of uh, different people in different industries, but retailers and restaurateurs specifically, where we really say, you know, tell your story and tell it in a very authentic way. And uh, don't don't just follow, you know, trends because people that end up catching up with the brands and won't let you create that loyal following that you're looking to, to create. I think the listeners are going to really be interested in hearing the answers to the next couple of questions. But as you've talked to different, you know, people in, over the years that you've consulted, What's the best in-store experience that you've ever seen? We talk a lot about loyalty. And I think the way we talk about loyalty is all wrong. We've learned about loyalty from the airlines because they give you points and you get miles and you keep on flying on the airline to get to a higher level, blah, blah, blah. That's not loyalty. That's money. That's paying people to be your friend or your customer. There's a name for that, but it's not loyalty. Real loyalty comes in retail and in any other business, the same way it comes in all human relationships. It comes because people see an affinity. They see the way you act. They see the way you treat them. They like it, and they want to return the favor to you. So nothing has ever been invented that is a better tool to convert a browser into a customer than a great retail experience. What is that retail experience? It's where people's needs are met. It's where people go above and beyond. It's where people listen. And it's where people react. And it isn't always immediately commercial. It's where you perform a service that gets a consumer a better experience. Not a party experience where there's entertainment in the store, but it's where they get the product they want in the most easy way possible. We've all had these experiences and you say, wow, I want to go back and go back to that store and do it again. One of the hard things in retail is having great store associates and having great store management. 
And that's the challenge. Can you have great store management and great store associates who can be trained to develop true loyalty? That's where the value is. It's the holy grail of retail. Do you think that's all to that point? Is it is it a play into some technology and people? Is it is it a play into having a really strong playbook? What what, what goes into into defining that for for a brand? Technology has an important role to play. My vision of a great in-store experience is you walk into a store and a store associate comes up to you and says, "Welcome back. Here's this thing, a garment, for example, that we think you're going to like." And it's based on software that understands what you've looked at in their store, what you've looked at online, what you've bought, what's in your closet. It knows all that and it picks something out, hopefully something that you might not have picked for yourself, but with expert advice and a recommendation, you would buy. We've all had that experience. And when that happens and you buy it and you wear the thing and you walk out and someone says, hey, nice shirt. You say, well, that was a great experience. I want to go back to that place. That's what you're looking for. Technology has a role to play because the world's so big now that you can't track every customer who comes into your store the way you could when the world was mostly just small towns with individual merchants who knew you personally. But technology can resolve that. And the technology exists to do what I've just described. It's going to happen, but it will still always depend on how that store associate presents it and what's the tone of the conversation with a customer and a sales associate. Are there technologies that you've run into or kind of followed over the years that you think uh, are being adopted at a faster pace than typical? It's hard to say because there's a race now. If you go to conferences, I've been to many conferences that are about retail technology. And at those conferences, there are dozens and dozens of great ideas. Some will endure and some won't to help consumers have a better experience. So they're all targeting the same thing, each in a different way, and they're shaking out now. And we'll have to see what endures and what doesn't. Is there technology that you think will have maybe the biggest impact on shaping the future? Are there things that retailers should be looking at right now? Or I think a lot of what I'm hearing you you say is first figure out your value statements, then figure out how to make those happen with either technology and people and a combination of both. But is there anything that you think that, oh, this technology is probably going to take off in the next few years to have the biggest impact on the shopping experience? Well, artificial intelligence and machine learning have a million different ways in which they're applicable. I've seen a large number of them that are really interesting. I can't think of them all. There's a couple that come to mind now that you're asking. There's a company, it's a startup, called Tastetree. T-A-S-T-R-Y. Really interesting. So here's what they do. They give you a questionnaire and they ask you, what kind of flavors do you like? The smell of cut grass, vanilla, strawberry, lavender. What do you like? And then they do a chemical analysis of wine. And the chemistry tells them which of the flavors you like come out in the chemicals that are in the wine. And they can therefore make recommendations to you for wine that you're likely to like without your having to taste it. It does a number of things. First of all, of course, it helps you buy wine online. It helps you buy wine you haven't tasted. It helps you go to a supermarket and pick out wine without having to spend an hour and go through tastings. It turns out 
that flavor preferences are cultural. So that in certain neighborhoods, you'll find a preference for flavors that aren't in other neighborhoods. And that means that certain wines will sell better in those neighborhoods. And you can predict that based on who's in the neighborhood. So there's all kinds of applicability that makes for a better experience for the consumer, better inventory for the retailer because they don't have all those bottles of wine that are sitting around that consumers in the neighborhood don't want, and better value for everyone. And if you're a winery, you say to yourself, well, what kind of wine should I create? This helps you answer the question. So there are so many ways. It's just one small example of how artificial intelligence and science can conspire, if you will, to help everyone in the value chain, from the producer to the retailer to the consumer, have a better experience. Now, as we were saying, if you have the wrong person in the store, none of that counts. But if you have the right person in the store, it's really powerful. Absolutely. Personalizing and creating that, that true experience definitely go hand in hand. Thank you, Richard. Is there anything that, you know, uh, any other kind of last guidance that you want to give to our to our listeners uh, as they're listening to all this, you know, a wealth of information that you provide them? Well, you know, retail is such a broad topic. I find it so interesting because retail is the business of where consumers indicate what the future is. When I travel, I like going into supermarkets in other countries because I get to see what do those people want? Because supermarkets, you know, most households send somebody to a supermarket once a week or more. And a supermarket tells you, what are people interested in? What kind of packages do they have? What kind of products do they have? What variety do they have? And that tells you how people live all over the world. And I think when you read retail backwards in that way, it shows you what's happening in the world around us. And I find that just endlessly fascinating. Absolutely. It's funny. As I as I travel, I kind of do the same thing, even in airports, as I have layovers, I go into the different stores and, and it allows you to really learn about the cultures, but also, you know, packaging and and, and how people interact and, and how they create experiences. So I share that that passion with you for sure. Well, thank you again, Richard. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, appreciate it. I think our listeners are really going to love this. And again, uh, thank you. Thank you for all the wealth of information here. Thanks for having me and love to chat anytime. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in this show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.